All right, so we're running uh, a bit later than I wanted to to start, so we're going to go in fast-forward mode. Um, we're going to turn up to you know, the speed a little bit here. Uh, so why don't you turn right to the book of Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you're using an app, you can tap on the app and get over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we've been going through the history of the church, the book of Acts, the start of what we experience even this morning and today in, in our life that started um, right after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And we have the story of this early church trying to figure out what does it mean to be the people of Jesus? What does it mean to be the church? What does that look like? And when we get to Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to some, some new things, some new regions, some new people. Um, some new challenges as the church continues to grow. So I want to start in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, um, and then we'll, read, we'll be reading through uh, the chapter as we progress here. So we start out in Acts chapter 8. We just got done with the stoning of Stephen. So here's a guy who talked about Jesus, and he ended up uh, winning a rock concert afterwards. Um, they took him out of the city. They stoned him. He was done. Um, Right after that, we pick up in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Now devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison. So Acts chapter 8 starts with this guy, Saul. We pick up with Saul later in chapter 9, but all we know right now is that Saul is not afraid to use capital punishment to quiet this Jesus movement. That's what happened with Stephen. He's not, he's not afraid to come up and put someone to death if they keep speaking about the name of Jesus. He didn't just stop there, though, like just in the temple and say, okay, if you're in the temple, we're going to deal with you. He started getting a list of people who were Jesus followers and going house to house and finding out who these people were and dragging them out, men and women, just dragging them out of their houses and throwing them in jail for being Jesus followers. And that got pretty severe. Severe enough that if you were a Jesus follower, you took off. You got out of town. You, you, I'm not sticking around. The apostles stayed. Everybody else spread out. They, they went throughout the region. And they went to, to the region, or the land, singular, which is interesting, to the land of Judea and Samaria. Any of you familiar with those regions? Kind of? Yeah? Let me give you a map here. All right, so you can see Jerusalem on the map. I don't know if I can use this. I'm not really good at this thing. Nope, that's the wrong one. See, I told you I wasn't good at it. See if I can use the little pointer thing here. Nope, I'm not good with this thing. Oh, there we go. Forget this. All right, so up there, there's Jerusalem. It's on the map. And that's where the apostles were, and that's where the disciples were, and that's where this persecution was taking place initially, was right there in Jerusalem. And as they spread out, some of them went to Judea, which you see is toward the south. And some of them went to Samaria, which is up toward the north. They spread out away from Jerusalem to get away. Now, Judea is this region surrounding Jerusalem. Um, it's the place where Jesus spent the majority of his time doing his ministry. It's where he hung out the most, was in Judea. It's also um, the place where the, the region of Judea 
was known as the Southern Kingdom. There was this king that Israel had named David. Remember him? He was like the most famous king that they had. And he had a son, Solomon. And Solomon did some great things. He built the temple. He made a very um, affluent nation. When Solomon died, the kingdom split into two. It split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Still all Israel, but you had the north and you had the south. And the southern kingdom was Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim or Judah, and its capital was Samaria. Samaria is a region as well as a city, just to make sure we're even more fuzzy on what this really is. Um, Samaria is in the north. The boundary line between the two of those has fluctuated over the years and even at different times and in different parts. You can have a different um, place where, like, it's not like you drove, like you got on your camel and you saw the yellow line. On, okay, there we go. We just crossed into the northern kingdom. Nothing like that. No border patrol to tell you you crossed over. So that line was fuzzy and it shifted. Now Samaria, Samaria was not liked by the rest of the Jews. They were like the outcasts. They were the, they were the relative that nobody wanted to acknowledge. I figured it's a holiday season and you all be able to relate with that. The ones in the south were considered Orthodox Jews. They were, they were serious about, their, about purity and about, they had Jerusalem, they had the temple. The ones in the north, they set up their own place of worship, separate from Jerusalem. No, that wasn't good. Matter of fact, the, the, the two tribes in the north, um, they were from the line of Joseph. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, sons uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. They were born to an Egyptian woman. They weren't purebred Jews. And yet they're two of the tribes. So this northern region has its own center of worship that it's not supposed to have. And it's, it's founded on two of the different tribes who were adopted by Jacob as part of, um, of the 12 tribes that would have land and they're born to an Egyptian woman. So they have been like at odds with the South all the way throughout their history. So when Luke says that the disciples spread out through the land of Judea and Samaria, what he's trying to get across is that the disciples went throughout the entire region of the 12 tribes of Israel. Samaria is still part of Israel. So disciples spread all throughout the region of the, the Jewish uh, region of Israel, both north and southern kingdoms. So here's going back to our, our passage here. Um, on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and ex all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. As they went, they preached. So the message of Jesus the Messiah was being taken to the entire people group of the Jews. And Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Now it says Philip went down. All right, so how do we solve that one? Well, directionally speaking, Samaria was north. Geographically speaking, Samaria was in a valley and Jerusalem was on a hill. So to say that he went down, even though he was going north, you ever get directions in upstate New York, they're really confusing sometimes. Pe people, I don't, one of the things that really bothers me when you get directions is when somebody tells you to go someplace where something used to be. This happens all the time. You go over here where that place used to be, Joe's gas station used to be, and turn left. Well, I don't know where Joe's gas station used to be, so what is there now? Oh, it's just an open field. Okay, so go to the open field and turn left, right? 
So sometimes we can, we can struggle with directions. In this case, he, he's going down because he's going geographically down from the city of Jerusalem, which was up on a hill, down into the valley regions of Samaria, which are very fertile, um, very great trade region in Samaria. But who's this Philip guy, anyway? Can anybody tell me who Philip is? Yes, one of the people who served the widows, the Hellenistic widows. Yeah, he's not an apostle. Did you catch that? He's not an apostle. He's one of the seven that was picked in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. When they were trying to decide who could help serve the tables uh, for the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, they picked seven men. And the first one was Stephen. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And then they list off the rest of them. Now, Luke likes to do this, and you should pick up on this. Luke will introduce a character in one part of the book and then reintroduce him later. So he started by saying, here's these seven guys that were picked to serve tables. And the first one was Stephen, and we already read about him. He's the one that got stoned. The second one was Philip. So let me tell you about Philip's story next. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's going to do this also with Saul. We just got introduced to Saul at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. We're going to pick up with Saul again in chapter 9. So this is a literary style that, that Luke uses. He'll introduce a character in one context and then bring him back later on. And I think it's really cool, something you can watch for as you go through the book. So there's this guy, Philip. He's one of the seven that were picked. Um, anything else we know about him? Well, he was an evangelist. He took the word of God to the people that he came to in Samaria. So we can say he was an evangelist. I guess we can know that about him. He was proclaiming the Messiah to the people of Samaria. And that's what an evangelist is. Now, there are some people who are like Billy Graham. They were evangelists, and you're like, oh, I, you know, I could never be like Billy Graham. But anybody who takes the message of Jesus to somebody else is an evangelist, a proclaimer of the good news. So he was uh, an evangelist, and he really did something that Jesus would have done. He took the message of the gospel to a people group that nobody really wanted to go to. Jesus hung out with marginalized people. He hung out with prostitutes, with tax collectors, and notorious sinners, people that nobody else wanted to hang out with. Philip went to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were so hated by the Jews that if you were going to go north of Samaria, you would go around Samaria, not through Samaria. Like, you would avoid the whole region just so that you didn't have to go through Samaria. And Philip goes right there. We also know, so we know that he was one of the seven chosen. We know that he was an evangelist. We also know that he was a married man with lots of patience. Like, well, how do you know that? Well, we actually get connected with Philip later on in Acts with some of Paul's missionary journeys. I'm going to take you to Acts 21.8. This is one of Paul's missionary journeys. And he says this, The next day we left and came to Caesarea where we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. So you already get two of the different titles there, Philip, an evangelist, one of the seven. So where does the patience come in? This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Okay, well maybe I'm reading a little bit into an assumption there that a guy with four daughters had patience. We don't know that to be true or not, but I'm going to say it is. We can surmise, though, that he was a godly leader in his home. And how can we say that? Because his children were following God and being sensitive to the Spirit of God. So what we really know about Philip 
is that he was willing to serve because he was willing to be one of the seven to wait on tables. When that ministry dried up because they were all being scattered out of Jerusalem, he was willing to share the word of Jesus with others to be an evangelist. And we also know that when he finally came to a region where he settled, he made sure that his family was an important part of his ministry. He passed on his faith to his family. Philip was not an apostle. And I want to keep bringing that up. He was not an apostle. In this book of Acts, <laughs> how many of you have the title in your, in your Bible that says Acts of the Apostles? See, that's, that's disturbing to me. Sometimes it just says Acts, and you're like, well, Acts of what? We talked about this previously. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples of Jesus. Apostles and disciples. Everybody who were followers of Jesus. Philip was not an apostle, and yet his story was super significant, just as Stephen's was. Philip was a disciple who took Jesus seriously. And as a result, he was a servant, he was an evangelist, and he was a godly leader in his home. And I think this is the calling of all Jesus followers. And I want to, to make sure you capture this point, if nothing else today. That it's the calling of every Jesus follower to serve others, to share Jesus, and to invest your faith in your family. It is never okay to sacrifice our families for the church. Catch that. I have watched too many lives destroyed, too many lives hurt and ruined, because godly men abandoned their families to put the church first. That's a mistake. There are times, as, a, as an elder, that David and I may say to you, I can't help you at the moment because I have a need in my family that I have to take care of. And I pray that you give the grace that we need for that. Because it would be wrong for us to sacrifice our families on the altar of church ministry. Our first ministry is our family. And we constantly have to remind each other of that. But that's true of all of us. You can be so caught up in helping others that you neglect the ones that God has entrusted you with, the gift that God has given you of your family. So the calling of all believers is to serve others, to share Jesus, and to invest our faith in our families. Now, there's some things that Philip will do that you and I probably won't do. I'm not sure that many of you will have the experience of casting demons out of people. It happens. I've seen it happen as a child up in, in the governor area. It still happens today. It might not be something that's a part of your life experience or your faith experience. You, you may not be part of God's healing process of making a lame man walk or a paralytic person get up and go. But regardless of that, you and I are given the Spirit of God and we are able to serve and to share, and to invest in our families. So let's go back to Philip. Chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. And they listened, and they saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now David covered this uh, last week, so I don't want to dwell here too long, other than to point out, that the signs and wonders 
validate the ministry and the message and even the messenger and who sent them. So when you see these signs and wonders, it's a validation that Philip is coming in the name of God and that the message that he has is the message of Jesus from God. As they listened, they saw. It's important that the message is always there and not just the actions. You and I may never have God validate our ministry by calling down fire from heaven or seeing lame people walk, but the message is still the message. He could choose, and he still does today, especially in many countries where there's a lot of spiritual oppression and a lot of witchcraft. It's not uncommon to see God actually show signs and wonders through his people to show that he is the God that's greater than the the other force, the other deity that those people are, are serving. And that still happens today as you read uh, missionary reports. We may never be a part of, of that miracle or that spectacular, but we get to be a part of the message always. And that's really cool. And the message is what's really significant because physical healing is only for a while. Spiritual healing is for eternity. And that's what brings real joy. And the people in Samaria were filled with great joy. So after this, we read about Philip, and we got all this stuff going on with Philip. It's really cool. People are happy. We get introduced to this other guy. This, he's kind of different. His name is Simon. Now, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. This is pretty cool. So Luke is, is giving us a parallel between Philip and Simon, and he does it with a phrase. Um, we see here, in, in verse 6, the crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said. But now in, in verse 10, we read that Everybody paid attention to Simon because of what he did and said. They both had miracles. They both had signs that came with them. One of them was doing it through sorcery. One of them was doing it through God. And the people were just enthralled by this. The crowds were looking for the spectacular. They wanted to see something amazing. And when they found that amazing thing, they were attracted to it. Historically, this has always been true, hasn't it? People want the spectacular. They don't always know where the source is. They don't always care where the source is. But they're attracted to the spectacular. The people gave Simon a name, or perhaps he gave it to himself and the people accepted it, because he told the people he was somebody great and they believed it. And they gave him the name, the great power of God. There's a title, right? David Steltz, elder NCF Church, the great power of God, right? That looked good on a business card. Or crazy, or crazy right? <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. I won't do that, I promise, right? Yeah, he, he got the title, The Great Power of God, which is so ironic for multiple reasons. One, because his power was not coming from God, right? Which is really ironic. But I think it's also ironic in what it says about people. See, Jesus, God in the flesh was and is the greatest power of God. But the people were offended by him, and they killed him. Simon, when coming with great power, though not of God, had fame 
and followers and a platform for his message. Jesus, on the other hand, was declaimed infamous. His followers were scattered and he was hung on a platform to die. What is the real irony there? The one who took the name, the great power of God, was not from God at all and had no power to lead people to God. And the one who came from God and was the power and is the power of God was crucified and not accepted by the people he came to. Simon's goal was to make a great name for himself. That was his goal. He came and he said, listen, I am a great person. And he took the title and he's like, oh, I like that. You know, David's like, don't put that on my card. Simon was like, I'll take it. I'll take it. Can't imagine what his podcast would have been called. He said, I'll take that. Can you think of any other stories from the Bible where people wanted to make a name for themselves, a great name for themselves? Any? Old Testament? What's that? Babel. Tower of Babel. Good job. In Genesis 11, verse 4, the people came together and they said, let's build ourselves a city with a tower with its top to the sky and let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Let's make a name for ourselves. Folks, we exist for the glory of God, for his name, not our name. Amen? Our name only matters because it's written in his book. Our name only matters if it's covered in the blood of the name of Jesus. Our name only has value because of the name of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that was made for us. We were made in God's image to bear his name and to make his name great. And we do that by the way that we live. Even Jesus, when he came did not come to make his own name great, did he? He didn't. He came to make the Father's name great, and because of that, the Father made his name great. Adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Did you catch that? People will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and God's name will be glorified in it. The Father exalted the Son and gave him the name above every other name because the Son was willing to be humble and obedient, putting the Father on display and not making a name for himself. Matter of fact, he took on the title, not Son of God. What's the title he took on? Son of man. Son of man, dirt person. Not, not divine, but dirt. Much more, Simon came and he was known as the great power of God. Philip came and he was much more humble. Um, Jesus, obviously, was the ultimate example of that humility. Philip, though, is about making the name of Jesus great. 
Simon is about making his own name great, or at least it was. So let's read on. When they believed, that's the crowds, when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So the crowds believed Philip and they were baptized. Even Simon believed and was baptized. Have you ever found yourself skeptical of someone's profession of faith? You're like, I don't know. All right, what about that person that you read about in the news who's been on death row and, um, and they have a moment where, where a God encounter where they're now following God and they're a follower of Jesus? Do you ever find yourself thinking, having a little bit of skepticism about that? Especially someone who comes from a sketchy background or something like witchcraft. Um, we can assume in this case that Simon was a Jew. And why would we assume that? because they gave him the title, the power of God, and they wouldn't do that to someone who was not Jewish. So we can assume that he was a Jewish man and not a Gentile. And there were many, many Israelites who followed the law and followed sacrifices, but didn't know Yahweh personally. And even more, that had never accepted Jesus as Messiah. To see a famous Israelite, someone that the people looked up to, choose to follow Jesus shouldn't be a cause for skepticism or surprise or concern. See, we can only judge from appearances, and God knows the heart. We should take people's commitment for what it appears to be and allow God to settle the matter if it's not. But the, Jesus does tell us, though, that people will be known by their fruit, right? Right? So in other words, how they live will, de will demonstrate whether or not it was a real commitment. So let me give you a little modern day uh, illustration here. Have any of you ever heard of a person named Kat Von D? Yeah? If you're into tattoos, you might know about her. She, had a tat she uh, is a very famous tattoo artist. She's had her own clothing lines and beauty lines. Um, she's been on a reality TV show. She was also involved in witchcraft and the occult. Um, there's a great article, and I'll have a link on the, the notes online for you from Faithwire. Um, I want to read part of this to you. Kat Von D, whose full name is Catherine Von Drachenberg, publicly professed her faith in Jesus one year after announcing she was turning away from witchcraft and the occult. In July 2022, the former reality TV star wrote in an Instagram post that, quote, it's never been more clear to me that there is a spiritual battle taking place and I want to surround myself and my family with love and light. Von D went on to note that to her surprise, most of the criticism she received online was from, uh, was from social media users who identified as Christians rather than her atheist followers. Hmm. It was, quote, it was really the Christians who were the worst, she said. It was really just sad to see this critical display of judgment from Christians, and I don't understand what would inspire that, aside from something that's more egoic, because that isn't Christ-like. To judge people or judge people's journey, you would think that most Christians would be happy for you when you come to this point in your life, especially when you get baptized. And her baptism was made public, and as you watch the video, you can see a lot of her supporters um, who are not necessarily Christians, they're in the church service for her, supporting her. 
There's no reason for us to doubt the authenticity of, of someone's conversion. And we should be rejoicing with them. If it's not true, God takes care of that. If it is true, we should be supporting them 100%. But we are not to judge the hearts of people. We cannot. In the same sense, as we approach Simon here, it says that he believed and he was baptized, and we have no reason to doubt his authenticity and his conversion at this point. Luke records it as a matter of fact and said he did believe, and I have a feeling that if he didn't, and Philip knew, he wouldn't have let Simon get baptized. But he was baptized, which meant that they believed it was a true conversion. So I want to just challenge you in this way. Um, it's natural for us to be skeptical, but we need to push past that and ask God for us instead to be graceful and to acknowledge that God can change even the hardest of hearts and even the quote-unquote worst of people and turn them into beautiful children of God. Let's not ever doubt how far God's grace can reach and how much he can do. So moving on, Simon's story continues. When the apostles were, who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. And after they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John leave Jerusalem. They go to Samaria. Very uncommon again. They pray for the Samaritan believers. They lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're looking for a can of worms to preach on, this is it. Right? Thank you, David. I got this one. <laughs> this passage seems very confusing and often raises more questions than it answers. I, I thought the scriptures say that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. Why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit as soon as they believed? Why did the apostles have to lay hands on them like it was passed on from them to the new converts in Samaria? And is this still the way that it works today? I mean, there's questions that just start popping up. Well, if we start with the first teaching in Acts that we have about the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, we can go back to chapter 2. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that was a teaching from Peter in Jerusalem. Now he's in Samaria. The believers had not yet received the Holy Spirit, and so Peter and John lay hands on them, and we read, Peter and John laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So you're like, okay, we have, they didn't lay hands on them in the first one, they did in the second one, it's, it, it's different here. Later in chapter 8, we read about the Ethiopian eunuch, David Lord Willing is going to cover that one next week, who accepts Jesus and is baptized, but we don't even hear about him receiving the Spirit, so we don't get any clue from that one. So just in case you think either of these two situations is like the de facto way that the Spirit's given, um, you have to also consider Acts chapter 10. In that chapter, there's a Roman soldier named Cornelius who has a visit from an angel and a visit from Peter, and here's what happens. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And after that, so they believed, they received the Spirit. After that, they were baptized in water. Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay for a few days. It's like, 
All right, so wait a minute. First it says, believe and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And it's like that, that there's a pattern. But then it's like some believed and were baptized and then they received the Holy Spirit. And then others believed and received the Holy Spirit. And then they were baptized and some had laying on of hands and some didn't. And you're like, what's going on here? If you look at all the examples in Acts, you have a pattern that goes kind of like this. Acts chapter 2. Believe, baptize, given the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8. Believe, baptize, given the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 10. Believe, receive the Spirit with no laying on of hands, get baptized. And then in Acts chapter 19, there's another one. Believe, be baptized, and receive the Spirit by laying on of hands. That was in Ephesus to the disciples of John the Baptist. Be careful about forming doctrine or dogma on any one of these as far as the way that God will choose to work. The equation? I don't know. It's a God thing. There you go. That's the equation. Jesus plus belief equals salvation and the Holy Spirit. The rest of it seems to be all over the place here. Um, the con- and I want, to read, I want to read something from one of my commentaries on this. The conversion of the Samaritans is particularly significant as the gospel for the first time reaches people who are not unambiguously members of the people of Israel. It should also be noted that in these four cases... The manifestations linked with the reception of the Holy Spirit, whether it included the speaking in tongues or laying on of hands, constituted corporate rather than individual experiences. In each of these cases in the book of Acts, we're being introduced to a new people group that has received the full and complete gift of salvation. I believe the focus is not meant to be on the method but on the unification of the body of Christ. There are no unclean, second-class, unacceptable people groups when it comes to the church. It's about anyone in any place at any time believing in the gift of salvation, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit to each of these four people groups, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, the Gentiles, and then even John the Baptist's disciples who were separate from the rest of those other groups, was significant in showing that it's all the body of Christ. They all receive the Spirit. Everybody who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's so important. And yet, ironically, This giving of the Holy Spirit has become the method in which it's passed on, whether it's laying on of hands or praying or whether they're speaking in tongues or not, has become one of the things that has divided the Church of Christ so much in the modern day. And yet I believe it was meant to be one of the unifying things of the body, that we all have the Spirit. Be careful not to form a dogma on one passage alone. We're in a book of transitions where the plan of God for the nations, for Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, is being unfolded. And the apostles and the disciples in Jerusalem received the Spirit at Pentecost, and now the regions outside of Jerusalem have received the gospel. They responded and were baptized as Samaritans, were not accepted by the Jews in Jerusalem, 
So Peter and John come down to show that these people are God's people. They are not second-class citizens. They are not leftovers. They are not outside the covenant. They are the people of God, sealed by the Spirit of God, given the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So back to Simon. I'm sure some of you will have questions on that or comments or want to talk about that together. I'd, I'd love to do that with you. Um, it just breaks, breaks my heart that um, such a beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit has become such a division in the church. Simon. Luke takes us back to the story of Simon. When Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now we find out a little bit about Simon's heart. Any of you ever heard of the phrase simony or, or simony? Any of you ever heard of that phrase? Um, it actually means the buying or selling of ecclesiastical privileges. The, so buying a pardon is something the church used. Church, you, know, you used to be able to buy forgiveness from the church ahead of time kind of concept is that? I'm going to go out and sin, so I'm just going to, get, I'm going to go get a pardon. I'm going to buy that from the church so that after I sin, I can just kind of like cash it in and I know I'll be okay if I die. Um, yeah, well, it came from this guy. Simon asked for the ability to impart the Holy Spirit on other people. Well, how crazy is that? Um, I think his mind was still caught up in this world of, of sorcery and witchcraft and that type of economy. In Peter's response, there's important insights. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a gift. You cannot buy the favor of God. You cannot purchase what God has to offer. One person already did purchase. It cost him his very life. And that was Jesus who gave his life so that you and I could have life. That was the gift. Receiving the, the Spirit is a gift. Simon's issue was a heart issue. Why did Simon want the ability to pass on the Holy Spirit to others? Apparently not for the sake of the kingdom, even if it was for the benefit of the recipient, it was obvious um, that his main goal was somehow to, to be famous again. Uh, Philip says that there's two things about him. His, he was poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. I put three different translations of, those, of that verse up here because they each read a little bit differently. Those are harsh pronouncements, but they're very insightful. Envy or bitterness or jealousy... Envy is something that fills us and poisons us. Simon was envious. Perhaps he was envious of the power that the apostles had that he did not. Or maybe he was envious of the crowds following Philip now instead of following him, something that he's lost, lost his fame. Whatever the issue, it's the same type of emotion that drove the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders to put Jesus on a cross because they were envious of him. They were jealous of him. Envy fills and poisons to the point where we cannot see what has been given, but we only see what has not been given or what's been taken away. Galatians 5 says that if we live by the Spirit, let us keep also in step with the Spirit, not becoming conceited or provoking one another 
or envying one another. A kingdom worldview does not envy if God chooses to do amazing things through someone else or even through some other church. I've heard pastors bashing other churches because people are leaving their church to go to another church because God's doing something there. And it's like, why would we be upset if the kingdom is growing and God's message is being preached? It's not about North Country. It's not about any one church. It's about God's kingdom. We shouldn't be envious of what another church has. We shouldn't be proud either of if we have something they don't. Envy is not a kingdom mindset. The other thing is Simon was bound and shackled by unrighteousness. So what does that mean? Um, I think Luke gave us a little bit of insight when he said that Simon was trying to build a name for himself. He was chained to his desire to make his name great. There's a character I'm going to reference that you can look up in Daniel chapter 4. It's this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. He talked about his name and his glory, and God humbled him. Um, so this theme carries all throughout scriptures. I'm not going to cover it today because of our time. But Peter's warning to Simon was to repent and to pray. The cause for alarm here, though, is that we don't read about Simon repenting or praying, do we? Simon says to Philip, you pray for me that God will not do these things. We don't have a record of him repenting and praying. Instead, he asked Peter, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, he asked Peter to pray for him. So what do we take away from this? Simon did miracles that appeared to be from God, and they were not, and the people were fooled. We cannot and should not attribute all miraculous things to God but we should seek diligently whether they are from God or not. There are many people who are being led astray because of spectacular-looking things that are not from God. Simon believed that in Jesus and was baptized, but it's possible that his motives were all wrong. I believe Philip thought he was sincere, he wouldn't have baptized him, but it's a reminder for us that we are to be um, looking for the best in people and believing the best about people and allowing their fruit to prove otherwise. Allowing God to be the judge of the hearts and not us. To rejoice with those who make professions of faith. But we also learned that Simon's heart was bad. We never get whether or not Simon was truly saved or not. We were told he, was believed, and he believed and was baptized, which would lead us to believe he was saved. But we know that there were issues with his heart. Following Jesus was a way to be popular or possibly to make a living in his mind. And that's still a very real and a very bad motive in church today. It is possible that there are people who attend church to have social connections to get business. This happens in the United States of America. I go to this church because these other business people do, and we do business together because we're all from the same church. It's a wrong reason to be following Jesus. It's possible that people are serving in leadership, even as pastors, for the fame and wealth of it, and not for the glory of God's kingdom or his name. Simon is a reminder that we can appear to be doing the right things, but our hearts can be far from God. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So how do we make sure that we are not like Simon? How do we make sure that we are not far from God, that we are careful to not allow things to creep in and have wrong thoughts or wrong hearts, wrong motives. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, 
It penetrates as far as the separation of the spirit and soul, joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think we need to make sure that we spend time meditating on God's word. It means thinking about, processing, applying, and in prayer. Perhaps this message has hurt a little bit because your motives in following Jesus have been wrong. Repent and pray and seek God. This book is about the growth of the church and how it's learning to be a unified body. The church is to be filled up with people who have a kingdom worldview and a kingdom heart, a mindset that looks to invite as many as possible to enter in, especially the marginalized, the outcasts, and the difficult, like Philip did. The church needs to be committed to making a name for Jesus and not making a name for itself. And it must be unified on the mission of sharing Jesus and not divided on dogma. And after testifying and preaching these things, the apostles traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in as many villages as they could. The apostles supported the work in Samaria, embraced those people as brothers and sisters, and then went back to their place of ministry. And on the way, they took Jesus and the message of the gospel with them. We started this passage with the disciples being scattered, like Philip, and they shared the good news of forgiveness in Jesus as they traveled from Jerusalem. We end with the apostles on their way back to Jerusalem, and as they're going, they're sharing the good news of Jesus with the people in Samaria. And we're reminded that we need to be committed, no matter what journey God has us on, what road we're on, we need to be committed to sharing the goodness of God, the good news of Jesus with whomever we get to travel with, whomever our paths cross the road on the road that we're on. The goal is to make sure that his name is glorified and that his kingdom is built. David, would you come and pray?